So I think Al Gore must have broken my heart too. Um, at some point in time, I, I was looking through some old files and actually in a conversation with Heather, I was remembering eight years ago when I was over at Unity Church Unitarian across the river in my internship over there, I preached basically an Earth Day sermon. Um, so I went back to that sermon and uh, read through bits and pieces of it. And just to give you some context here, this was a moment where Juliana and I were together and we had not yet had our son, Tucker. And I had been in this season in my life, in my ministry, I was on a tear reading everything, watching everything I could about climate change and what was going on. So book after book, scientific perspectives, lay perspectives, religious perspectives, Al Gore perspectives, on these inconvenient truths that we were, that were staring us in the face. And the more I read, the clearer I got that we were headed toward this environmental catastrophe. So I took um, all of those facts and a great deal of anxiety into the pulpit with me when I, <laughs> when I preached that sermon. So it was a heady, fact-filled sermon. It was filled with facts about how the ocean is becoming more and more acidic, which kills shellfish, which kills coral, which is terrible. It's filled with facts about the polar ice caps, which are the air conditioning units of our planet, how they are not really working. We're busting our AC unit, and it's, it's going to be a hot and muggy, permanent time. And it's filled with facts about the Industrial Revolution and the slow, steady climb of carbon dioxide over the past 200 years. I rattled off facts and facts. There's probably some blame and guilt and shame thrown in there. Just a whole heaping of my own stuff before I could really get to what was with me and to name the truth of what was behind all of the ranting and the rattling and the facts and the anger. Before I could name that, I had to put all that other stuff out there. And what was on my heart that day was a great deal of confusion and grief and deep sadness. Juliana and I, at that point in our relationship, we had been talking about having children. And I, had, I was struggling. I was struggling with that idea, wondering, what does it mean? Is it right? Is it morally right? Is it spiritually right to bring a child into this world when it is clear from so many indicators that this world is looking more and more like a kind of hell? I know every parent wrestles with those questions in different ways, whether it's the Cuban Missile Crisis or the Cold War with Russia or whatever it is, we, we come to those moments. And some of us come to those moments and say we're not going to have children and are at peace with that. But I was not clear and I was deeply wrestling. I moved through the fear. I could name the fear. I could talk about the fear. And together, Juliana and I moved through that and we did have a child. Our son Tucker is six and a half now. He is one of the greatest parts of my life, the biggest challenge, the biggest spiritual or generator of spiritual growth uh, <laughs> for me. <laughs> I hope he's experiencing some spiritual growth as well. And this incredible mirror, right? I mean, like good friends, our children are these mirrors where we start to see ourselves in different ways. So it has been a blessing beyond measure to have a son. But these questions, these questions that were stirring in me eight years ago are stirring in me again right now um, because Tucker will soon be a big brother. Many of you know we're expecting a child. Thank you. 
Uh, we're expecting a child toward the end of May, and we are thrilled and excited, but the questions are stirring in me again. So when Heather and I sat down at a coffee shop not too long ago to talk through this and kind of plan out the sermon and what it was going to be like, I thought of this sermon from eight years ago. And I said, Heather, I think there's some stuff there I'm going to look at. So I went back to the sermon and actually read it through a couple of times. And I, I, I've looked through it, and I'm seeing it with incredibly different eyes this time through. Partly because I have a son, a, ch- a child in the world, but also because of the racial justice ministry that we are doing together. And the fact that that work makes me feel hopeful for the world I'm bringing our son into, that we're bringing our son into, that collectively we can make new choices and walk a different path and create a different way. I will also tell you there are parts of this sermon that made me laugh at myself uh, because of what I didn't see, right? So this is one of the gifts of ministry for all of us. I get to watch myself grow and change. You get to watch the growth and change of your ministers. And I saw some of that looking at this sermon. So there were parts of this sermon from eight years ago where as a way to deal with the fear and anxiety I felt. And let me just stop there for a second too. I think this is critical work for all of us. Take out racial justice work or environmental climate change work or anything. But when we're anxious and confused and scared and angry, more often than not, what's behind that, and this is where the compassion of, the practice of compassion is so critical, is just deep grief. Just deep grief. So I dealt with my fear and anxiety and some of that deep grief that, in that sermon eight years ago by um, suggesting some of these fixes for the, the planet on the brink of collapse. Here's what I said. I said, I think we should put in more compact fluorescent light bulbs. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I talked about getting rid of my gas lawnmower and getting a pushing lawnmower. Oh, yeah, this will save the planet. Woo! I talked about signing up for wind energy with Excel, and I also talked about becoming a vegetarian, which is a great way to reduce your CO2 emissions. It's about the equivalent of maybe moving to, like, buying a Prius, and it's cheaper than buying a Prius. So eight years ago, I acknowledged that these were small things, and your laughter, right? We know, haha, like changing light bulbs, like that is not system change, but it is a piece. It is a piece, and so I acknowledge these were small things, and that I also found hope in the fact that if all of us together as a faith community took some steps like that, maybe we could move in a direction of saving the planet. Those are important actions, and while they matter, and they're a part of a bigger puzzle, what was missing in that sermon from eight years ago, what was completely absent from that sermon eight years ago, was any kind of analysis around the white racial narrative, around whiteness, around the story of whiteness in my sermon, which is funny because that story is built into the fabric of our country which is funny because that's a story that said black people were property and assets and resources for white people. They were less than human. That's the story of rugged white individuals moving across the land, settling and civilizing Indians and taking resources and land. It's the story that we all, many of us, I don't want to say we all, but many of us grew up in that is deep in our bones. And I didn't question that story or that narrative at all in this sermon. I didn't question the white narrative that says white people are at the top in this racial hierarchy and white people are above the earth. The earth is a resource to extract resources from. 
and white people are above interdependence. Like, it's nice to think maybe we need other people, but like, we got bootstrapped and we pulled them up by ourselves. <laughs> That's the narrative. I'm not saying we've all had that experience, friends. Hear me on this, but that is the larger narrative we're embedded in. So when I look back at the sermon from eight years ago, I see how deeply compromised my faith was at that time. At that time, I was proposing solutions and, and fixes to a problem that didn't get to the, one of the tap roots of the problem, and in fact, probably wouldn't change anything. So what I see now, and what Heather is going to talk about in a minute, is that if we, as people of faith, are going to be effective in our climate change efforts, we have to understand whiteness and the ideas of white superiority that helped create the mess that we're in. Good morning. Am I on? I'm on now. I'm on now. So it's good to be with you all again. Thank you, Justin, for those words. Thank you, Rama, for framing it so well. I mean, it's a beautiful question, right? Is growth good and who does it serve? That's exactly the right question, because whether it's my individual growth, our collective growth, our national or social growth, is it good and who does it serve? So thank you. Thank you for that. And thank you again, Alice, for amazing words. And one of the things I remember from watching the coverage of the 2009 protests in Copenhagen at the UN Environmental Conference is that there were people from all over the world and and maybe people spoke the same language, maybe they didn't. So they, just to ensure that they could chat with each other, they spoke through art. And so there was amazing art all over the place in Copenhagen. And you really got the picture, it was like oil. Oh! And you're like, whoa, that's big oil. You know, like you knew what it was, you didn't even have to be able to read anything or communicate in the same language. And so I say that because the power of artists is the thing that sometimes when we just feel broken and we feel lost and I feel in utter despair, I'll hear beautiful songs like the one you shared and remember, oh, wait a minute, there's somebody else out there. Hold on a second, this might not be the end. There might be something that I can tap into that's bigger than me. So it's a real gift, thank you. It's a, you know ironic that on your birthday you're giving us such a beautiful gift, so thank you, thank you. Yeah, for sure, right on, yeah. Ooh, yeah, clap. And so, here I am um, going to try to do this in less than an hour. I know that you all are like, oh good, I signed up for that. Um, no, no, no. I'm going to try to share with you just some reflections. This morning, I kind of stunk it up a little bit because I'm not used to standing behind a podium, but I thought I should probably give that a try, and it's so not my style. So I'll stand here for a minute, and then I'm going to move around a little bit because um, that helps me think better. And so um, I am honored to be here on this 45th Earth Day week, and, and it's so important to have this conversation with all of you, and that's what it really needs to be. It needs to be a thoughtful, critical, deeply engaged conversation of course, and, and so what a difficult conversation it is. I mentioned this morning that this is not a topic if you're at a party and you say, hey, how you doing? Oh, I'm fine, let's talk about climate justice and climate change. It's not gonna make you a lot of friends, and they might not even invite you back to the next party. And it doesn't make dinner conversations light and easy. And it doesn't, you know, uh, get you invited to speak most places. And yet, and yet, it's a conversation that's vital. And it's one that we have to have. And we have to keep having. But we have to have it from a very particular perspective. Or we're not going to feel like we're getting anywhere. We'll be spinning and spinning and spinning. And that was certainly the case for me. 
And so, this climate moment is grim, to be honest. I mean, it's grim. It's grim. And I'm not going to get into all the grimness. I'm not going to get all, you know, Hunger Gamesy on you. This is not a post-apocalyptic Mad Max conversation here of, you know, ah, we need another hero. That's not what this is. We're not going there. But the truth is, is that if we pay attention to the enormity of the statistical, the empirical, the natural trends that we're seeing, the numbers about heat and melt and sea level rise and CO2, they're really daunting. I mean, the reality in California right now is shocking, right? A drought they haven't seen in 1,200 years and all kinds of funky stuff going on with marine life and all kinds of bad things happening um, to, you know, sea lion pups and, and seabirds and starfish and, and, and. and and we can get all dismal about that or we can feel the grief of that and simultaneously listen because the earth is speaking, the planet is talking to us. And we have to listen. We have to listen and what gets in the way for me are all the trappings of my comfort and the, the kind of privileges of my life. It makes it hard for me to hear because I can't quite speak the same language because I'm not present, I'm not grounded in, I'm not paying attention. I'm distracted by stuff I'm distracted by my own ego and my own pride and my own self-will and the things that I think will make me safe. And every time I get close to really hearing the call, I get seduced away by the trappings of privilege and supremacy and issues of race. Every time I think I can feel the same heartbeat, I get pulled away by the promise of safety from classism. Every single time, I get lured away from really listening, really listening. And so I'm here to just chat a little bit about what has happened to me in that regard and share a little bit with you um, some of my thoughts about shifting the lens on climate change. And so the typical U.S. response to the topic of climate change is to either stick our head in the sand and say, well, when I was at St. Cloud State, students would say, well, I don't mind a few degrees warmer. That would be fine. I'm like, no, 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 you don't seem to understand. <laughs> We're talking about air temperature. We're talking about planet temp. You know, it's like body temperature. If you go up four or five degrees, you're in some serious trouble if your body temp is four to five degrees warmer. And when I'd frame it that way, you'd hear them go, oh, oh, that's not good. I'm like, yeah, you're right. That's not good. That's a very, very intense response right there. That's not good. That's not good. And so one response is to kind of just pretend it's not happening or another typical response, and this is so true in white liberal spaces, is to go out and do something. Like, I must do something, and we have a whole list of the kind of eight year ago Justin list of things to do, and so like, and I'm you know, putting new light bulbs in and I'm feeling great about that, LED now, LED, yeah. And so we wanna do something, and yet, that's often a mistake if we've not thought as deeply as necessary, if we've not learned what we need to learn in order to make the right choices. It's a huge mistake. And so before we rush into places where angels fear to tread, we have to recognize that there's a danger in taking action without the necessary information and perspective in hand. And so in 15 minutes, I'm not gonna lay that whole thing down for you. There's no way I can do that. However, I do wanna, as I said earlier, just try to shift the lens of the conversation a little bit. And so in line with this, I found that before trying to figure out what do I do, it's useful to ask, how did we get here? How did we get here? Because the path that has brought us here is one we must avoid from here on out. So I'll say that again, because it's just as important for me to hear it as maybe anyone else, is the path, the mindset, the practices, the worldviews, the ways of being in the world that has gotten us into this situation is the very path we absolutely must avoid from here on out. 
So if we don't know how we got here, it's very likely that in our effort to rush out and do something, we're gonna inadvertently keep doing the very things that led to this moment. And so I'm here to just offer a few thoughts on this question, how did we get here? In the service of better answering the question, what do we do? And so how did we get here? And I wanna just take a little tangent for a quick sec before I answer that is because some people will say, well, that's just human nature. We're greedy by nature. And I just love that. I'm like, really? That's, that feels horrible, actually. <laughs> like, that feels awful. And so, and I just kind of, it wants me to get an SUV and just ride it into hedonism, just all the way, just surf that thing all the way down, if that's just my natural state. Ah, that would be horrible. And so some people say that's true. We are predisposed to greed, consumption, and competition. And yet, and thank heavens, right, the last few decades of neuroscience in the West and millennia of tradition and wisdom in indigenous communities globally have agreed that as mammals, we're not inherently all that, we tend and befriend. And so the notion that we're inherently competitive and survive only if we're the fittest is a fiction. I'll say it again, that is a fiction. To be sure, it's a useful fiction if you're engaging in colonizations and systems of oppression and you need everybody to go along with it. It's incredibly useful. It's a useful fiction if you're trying to convince the masses that extractivist economic systems and ways of being in the world are the only plausible ones. It's a useful fiction if you want the majority to believe that any other way of being in the world is economic, social, and political suicide. If those are your goals, then it is absolutely perfect to cast humans as inherently greedy, competitive, and aggressive. Importantly, however, it is just not true. It is just not true. Thanks to mirror neurons, and you might be like, what's that? Some dude, I think his name is Rizzoletti and his research team in Italy, early 90s, 92 maybe-ish, they discovered mirror neurons. They're kind of watching monkeys do what humans are doing. They're like, what's up with that? But in a more you know, kind of a specific or kind of down-to-the-earth way, Every one of those YouTube baby laughing videos, that's mirror neurons. You're watching them there, and before you know it, you're like, oh my gosh, that's so funny, ripping paper, that's hilarious. And you're laughing too, right? So thank goodness we've got these things in our bodies. Thank goodness we've got these things in our physiology. Thank goodness, thank goodness, thank goodness that countless other aspects of our biology help us see that we as mammals are wired for empathy. We just are, we just are, and we are meant to connect. We are meant to connect to each other, to this planet, to every bit of life around us, and it is the gorgeous gift of our biology. And so how did we get here? Well, quite simply, we lost our way. We have lost our way profoundly and deeply. We have lost our way, and I'm just gonna talk about some missteps that we've taken, and I'm gonna shorten this a little bit. This is where I got all heady on the lecture in the morning crowd, and there I could just feel them saying, how do I get out of here? I'm in the middle of the row, ah! <laughs> Next time, sit on the edges, sit on the edges. Ah, she's boring me to death. And so, let me just try to shorten this a little bit, and if you were here this morning, you're gonna be like, whew, different, thank you. Um, and so, 
So here's what happened. You, so maybe in the late medieval period in Europe, and I'm going to really harsh on Europe here for a minute. In the late medieval period in Europe, unless you read Daniel Quinn's Ishmael, and then you're like, no, sister, that's 12,000 years ago. But I'm just going to start here because that's too much history to cover. And so late medieval Europe, they start thinking, and therefore they ammon. You know, I think, therefore I am. And you start to see this peeling away of our minds from our bodies. You start to see this separation from our heads and our bodies. And we all have inherited that as multi generational USers, particularly multi-generational white USers. And so I walk around like a big head, big head, you know? And certainly before I started really doing more and more social justice work, I was nothing but a head, you know? And I'd have to drag this thing around with me, like, oh, how you doing, how you doing? Just nothing but head, nothing but head. And what that meant is I was disaffected and disconnected from the world around me. So the first misstep is this separation of mind from body. Obviously, it's a false construction, but it was an incredibly useful one when it played into the second misstep, which was to frame nature in the feminine form, which in and of itself is not the problem, but framing nature in the feminine form in a society that is horribly misogynist and violence against, violent against women, you're going to see that we will be violent against nature. So when you frame it that way, in a society that hates women as much as the West has, then what you'll find is a society that hates nature too and sees it as an object, sees it as a commodity, sees it as something to be objectified and dominated at the will of the patriarchal structure. And so you can see how useful it is to be separated from nature if that's what you're going to do to nature, the inevitable violence against nature. And then the third misstep is just this, in Buddhism it would be called the hungry ghost, right? This pinhole of a mouth and an endless desire for stuff. And that's the mindset of colonial, colonizing imperialist Europe. It's just like, you know, just, they're like the Borg. They're just stuff, 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 stuff. And just consuming constantly endless consumption of people, places, and things. This rapacious, unquenchable, absolutely violent appetite that is utterly justified by everything that we do because because we are bringing civilization to the world. So you've got these three really powerful missteps, right? The separation of mind from body, thus the separation of myself from nature, and then framing nature in the feminine form in a horribly misogynist society that is violent against women, and then this endless consumption. So nature's to be dominated, and that domination will take the form of endless extraction. And so how do you make this okay? I love how big this flames up. I mean, it's awesome. How do you make this okay? How do you make it okay? How do you make that okay? You make it okay. That kind of makes me feel like the Wizard of Oz. I am the great and powerful Oz. I like that. I like that. That's awesome. And so, I'm, I know, I'm sorry. I'm really... Okay. Anyway, that's, go to a church and disrespect them. That's a great way to get them to like you. Just be utterly inappropriate. So, oh. And so, how do you make all this okay? I mean, you have to figure out a way to make it okay, right? You have to figure out a way almost to make nobody even notice. How do you make someone not notice that? Well, what the dominant structure did is, uh, they explain it away via the vehicle of race. 
So in particular, the notion, as Justin was alluding to, that white people are superior, and thus what predominantly white societies of people do cannot possibly be questioned because we are the superior racial group. You cannot challenge our choices because we are superior. We created civilization. We created democracy. We're the great thinkers and inventors. We are moving the entire world ahead through just the use of our brains. And so the creation of white four centuries ago, specifically in 1681, and I encourage you to read Jackie Battalora's The Birth of a White Nation to get more information on that, but the creation of white and all of its kind of attached notions of supremacy and entitlement has served as the perfect, perfect justification for the behaviors that have led us here. And so misstep number four was the creation of white and its use in explaining away each of the three previous missteps. And so we see this in the UN climate negotiations, right? The notion of white as superior has allowed all of those nations largely responsible for this climate crisis to neatly avoid any accountability for it. In the 1992 Rio summit, George Herbert Walker Bush kind of showed up on the second to last day, I think it was, and one of the key lines he said in that summit as we're trying to negotiate climate in 92 was, the American way of life is not negotiable. Flat out, quote unquote, the American way of life is not negotiable and therefore that is not on the table in this conversation. We might send you a few scraps from the table, we might decide to low, you know, increase our emission standards, but the ultimate American way of life is not up for debate here. It is not up for debate. And what we know about the construction of race is that when we say American, we typically mean white, multi-generational U.S. So, big points, right? <laughs> like, you came in here hoping for something inspirational, and you're like, wow, I feel awful. Like, blah, and then this is horrible, and then that happened, and blah. And so, I, you're probably feeling worse than you did when you sat down, but never fear, right? With an accurate and honest diagnosis, there becomes hope for an effective and truly healing solution. And so, this is what's gotten us here, these four missteps. And so, what do we do about it? Number one, we, of course, reconnect with nature, which is awesome. White people love to camp, and so camp, yes, <laughs> camp. Camp, camp, camp. But let's not kid ourselves that our REI membership and our endless camping is going to somehow magically solve this problem. It's not going to do that. It's not going to do that. And so we reconnect with nature, but then there's two other essential points. Number one is if race is the lens, or, or race, racism, and whiteness is the lens and worldview that has explained away and excused all of this stuff, then what we need to do is supplant that worldview with a racial justice lens. So you're already well on your way to doing step two, which is the construction of a racial justice lens, a critical race lens. And then you take that lens, you take that new and different worldview, and you attach it to new and different actions regarding climate issues. And what do I mean? Specifically, I mean you take a critical race lens, and that's the lens through which you do your climate justice work. And so this is incredibly important because typically climate justice is seen as like a parallel issue to racial justice or even just an intersectional issue. And what I'm suggesting is that you actually do your climate justice work through a racial justice lens. And it sounds good, but you know, why do we need it? Let me give you an example of rugged individualism, and I will sadly use myself. I will use myself. So rugged individualism is not like you shouldn't have your own thoughts. It's like rugged individualism, like you know, ah, that kind of stuff. It's the, it's the idea of I, I was born in the log cabin I built with my own hands. You know, like that thing. Like how, and then when you do the math, you're like, how do you do that actually? You're like, well, it doesn't matter. 
doesn't matter. Don't, don't confuse me with the facts. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And so here's some of the things that have happened to me in terms of being socialized as a white person in this country at the hands of an idea like rugged individualism. As a white person, I'm socialized to consume for my individual well-being, and therefore, I often consume way too much. I'm encouraged to live in a house that is more room than I actually need, but it's my marker of success and safety, so I won't give it up. I have possessions that often sit idle, but I don't share them because they're mine. I'll buy a Prius to save gas, but don't ask me to consider taking public transportation or put more money into public transportation because I like my rugged independence all too much and on and on. In short, the scourge of rugged individualism has me organize my life in self-centered, isolated, disconnected, and non-communal ways that the bottom line, whether you like this or not, the bottom line is that they are simply not sustainable for seven and a half billion people. Even in my activism and climate work, it is often done in isolation. And so the hard work of climate change is not figuring out how to release the chokehold of the carbon energy sector on my life. The hard work of, of doing climate change for me as a white person is to realize what got me in this relationship in the first place. What about me as a white person has led me down the path of disconnection from nature? Or better yet, what has had me not even notice that I am? What about whiteness has led me to believe that I deserve certain things because I've earned them, even if the possession of those things takes an incredible toll on the planet and its life? For example, flying to distant lands for a vacation. I went to India too, but it's not anything tied to my history or my identity or my family. I went for a month, mid-December to mid-January, because I wanted to go. And so I'm sitting here asking myself similar questions to you, but even more deeply, what am I doing here? What am I doing here? What am I doing here? The carbon footprint I laid down on that four and a half week trip was massive. What makes me think that's okay? To satisfy my curiosity because I've worked so hard I need a break because I've earned this, because it's improving my intellectual or spiritual growth? None of that seemed to weigh in the balance. And I'm not commenting on your reality, Rama, at all. I'm saying for me, as Heather, who has no connection and no other reason to be there, except I was curious, right? I was desirous to learn more. So whiteness has me live the life of a rugged individual who confuses charity for justice and says that I'll share resources with others only after I already have mine. It wants me to believe, regardless of my current economic reality, so maybe I'm not professional middle class, but if I'm white, working class, it's busy telling me that the accumulation of material goods is truly the pinnacle of success. So grab, accumulate, more, more, more. That is the imperative, that I show others I've made it, that I've done it on my own, and that therefore I am somebody in this world. Look at what I have. In truth, and there's a dude who um, studies trauma, his name's Bessel van der Kolk. He doesn't attach it to social justice realities, but it's not a hard leap, right? He said that Western civilization is the most disassociated, disconnected society in the history of the world. And I heard that, I'm like, I'm with you, brother. I think that's probably true. How else could white families go to church in the morning and a lynching in the afternoon? How else can we continually turn away from racial injustice and our climate realities? Really, what else would lead to black people having to repeatedly tell white folks black lives matter? If I was in touch with my own humanity and living in connection with others, that message would never need to even be said. But because of whiteness, I'm not living that way. At the hands of whiteness, I am just a bubble off plum 
with respect to my humanity. And it's like a meme seeking to survive and it will do anything, and I mean anything, to get me to believe that my disconnected, my extractivist life is the only normal one. And so this is the uplifting part of the program, right here. <laughs> this is the happy part of the show. And so it's kind of a dismal diagnosis. The good news is the whiteness is a socially constructed thing. It's made up. It has to keep telling its story in order for it to stick because as we watch super peewees, we know that super peewees notice this difference, but they don't actually care yet. And so whiteness has to work so hard at making sure everybody plays the rules. And so it's not a hopeless situation in general, but specifically it's not a hopeless situation because racial justice work counters every one of these things. And so enter racial justice. Not merely racial justice work, but instead the promise of a racially just life, right? Like, feel that in your mouth. The promise of a racially just life. Oh. That is some good stuff. Enter in the deep knowing that I actually am interconnected, which is you know right in your wheelhouse. That's what's so beautiful about this community. Enter in a knowing that always comes from solid and deep racial justice work that I am part of. Enter the sense of groundedness that stems from racial justice work and that reminds me how much I love this planet, how gorgeous it is, and how desperately I want it to thrive. Enter with racial justice the reclamation of my humanity because of the work that I am doing and the actions I'm taking in the desire to end racial oppression. And as I do that, of course, comes in the grief and the sadness and the regret, but that makes me human too. Enter in hope, not naive hope, but a hope stemming from the deeper knowledge that people can change. Isn't that awesome? I was, when I was in graduate school, I went to visit my grandmother. She was uh, late, I think she was 79 or 80 talking to her about racial issues. When we had dinner in that family, we turned the television on. I don't know what that was about. So I'm turning channels, and I pause it a bunch and keep going until she says something. I pause at Cosby, I turn it, and she's like, why'd you turn it from Cosby? Are you a racist or something? And I was like, that's awesome, Grandma! I mean, my grandmother just called me a racist. She's never used that language before, but she was listening to what I said, and at 79, 80 years old, she's like, I'm gonna call you a racist. You just are talking about it, bam, you're a racist. I was like, that's so fantastic, Grandma. I love you to bits. You know, I was just delighted, right? Because we always think, well, people can't change. No, that's not true. My grandma called me a racist at 79 years old. That can, I mean, good things can happen, right? Good things can happen. And so, we have to believe and have the hope that racial oppression is not an intractable situation and that as a community of people gathered here, your racial justice ministry and bringing that ministry into your hearts and lives just as surely as you breathe the air around you means that we have a chance. And nature knows this. Why? Because we are nature. We are. We are not separate. Our best selves and our greatest capacity are not gone. We have simply lost our way. So racial justice is a pathway back to ourselves, to an awakened human condition, but ultimately it's a path to a strong, effective, and expeditious road to climate justice. I cannot hang on to all my individual stuff and all my white consuming ways and hope for a different climate future. But through the lens of racial justice, I as a white person stand a chance of being different enough in the world such that true climate justice also has a chance. 
And so in challenging what it means to be white and challenging race, racism and whiteness, we disrupt the core ideologies that got us here. More specifically, we dismantle the lens that makes consumption and taking and more, more, more seem normal and we replace it with the one that can lead to just and sustainable mitigation. And so I'll say it again, we don't do racial justice work side by side, climate justice, they don't even intersect. We do climate justice through a racial justice lens to ensure that we don't miss anything. I'm not pulled back into whiteness. So let me give you a really specific example. It doesn't mean you don't do your work with Habitat for Humanity, but you do pause and ask the question, why are we building individual houses? Why are we doing that? Why are we propagating the notion that people are safe and better off with big individual houses? Why not build tiny house communities? Why not build structures that hold more people? Why not allow for some kind of community interaction that doesn't cut people off with the fence and the th all that stuff and the two and a half kids and the dog, the golden retriever and all that? If you have that, you're like, oh crap, she just talked about me. I'm not talking specifically <laughs> about you. But I'm talking about this notion that I'm okay and safe and right in the world if I have my own square footage. And it's mine, mine, mine. Like what would change if you did your habitat work and the climate justice work through a racial justice lens? How might that look differently? So we still need to house people, no question about it, but can we change the way we think about how we do that? So that we're not propagating the very ideas that are constantly making it difficult to do good climate justice work. Now, if you're sitting here and you're like, hey, lady, what about those two other isms, right? Like, I heard you mention gender in class. I want to go back to that. I'm totally with you on that. I'm totally with you on that. But the truth is, is that if you do really exceptional racial justice work, and you're already so down the road, stay on it. If you do good work, if you lean hard into white privilege, white supremacy, and racism, you will inevitably end up addressing class and gender. At their roots, they are so profoundly intertwined, you cannot help but hit the other two if you dig deeply enough with racial justice. And so do not be deterred nor distracted. If you stay the course of racial justice, you'll find liberation on many, many fronts. So I, I know this is a lot, so let me close where I began. I'm grateful to be in the company of so many people who are passionate about ending racial oppression and who care so deeply about living racially just lives. You're a model for me and a reminder of how much hope there is in doing this work. And I know for sure that as you embrace the compass heading of racial justice, you'll find a brilliant and effective path for your climate and environmental justice work. I was at a climate change conference in Iceland last June trying to convince a group of climate scientists of this very thing. And instead of hearing me, because um, it was me and all of them, they almost unanimously said, we don't have time to solve social justice issues before we solve the climate problem. Isn't it funny how everybody who disagrees with me always has the same voice? We don't have time for that. <laughs> I should find some different voices for them. We don't have time for that, you know? <laughs> pip, pip. And so, and this actually broke my heart for a number of reasons. But one is because that's not at all what I'm saying, actually. We don't have to finish social justice work before we do climate justice. We just do our climate justice work through a racial justice lens. But it broke my heart more so because of the reality that we actually don't have time not to do climate justice work through a social justice lens. We don't have time not to do it that way. We have such a small window of opportunity to make significant change regarding climate issues that we really need to get it right. We really need to get it right. And so you are on the path of getting it right, I believe. And I thank you for your courage and your love and your commitment. 
And I do believe that it's the path out of this mess. And I'll, again, one more time, I'm so honored to be in this work with such noble and kind and brave people. Thank you.